This is They Create Worlds, episode 88. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Like Mario before us, we now must delve into the mysteries of Sonic, who was just magically there with his magical hedgehogness and blast processing, going forth, going fast, making the kids happy. Well, something like that. Certainly, we try not to take sides in video game history, even if we may have our own secret personal preferences. But now that we've covered Mario a couple episodes ago, it only seems fair that we extend the same courtesy to Sonic the Hedgehog, the character that was locked in such epic combat with Mario in those uh, 16-bit days in the early 1990s as the two companies battled for market share in the United States. Well, if they battled for dominance, we did cover that whole part before. I guess really the first question is, what is the origin of Sonic? Because we dealt with Mario. He's sort of this plumber guy. He was all over this place. He was supposed to be this mascot parading Nintendo's wares hitherto to unknown depths. Sure, and uh, Sonic, of course, ends up being the same thing for Sega. But before we can really talk about... Sonic himself, uh, we do have to lay some of the groundwork and discuss some of what's going on with Sega in this time period, even though, as you said, some of this was already discussed in our Sega versus Nintendo episodes. In the 8-bit era, you had Nintendo with their Famicom slash Nintendo Entertainment System, and you had Sega with their Mark III slash Master System. And these are the two systems that were competing against each other for market share in the United States and Japan primarily. Neither company was particularly active in Europe yet at this time. Sega had some insurmountable obstacles in this period that they were really never going to overcome, and they never did overcome. When it came time to launch a new system, to have a fresh start with the Sega Genesis, or the Sega Mega Drive, if you prefer, in this 16-bit era... They felt it was important that they do everything in their power to create a system and create a set of games that would allow them to succeed against this Nintendo behemoth. Now, in the 8-bit era, Sega had tried to take on Mario with a game called Alex Kidd in Miracle World. Now, there's one thing we want to be very clear on as we talk about this. Alex Kidd, the star of this Alex Kidd game, was not a mascot character. Period. Not at all. Not at all. There's a lot of confusion about that. And that confusion really stems from the same old place where a lot of these confusions with the early Japanese stuff comes from, is that back in the day there were not very good sources on what was going on in Japan, and so assumptions were made, and these assumptions turned into fact, and then this fact turned into Wikipedia, and Wikipedia turned into the internet, and pretty sure nobody knows what's going on anymore. It's just a whole bunch of lies and heresy. (laughs) Right. So I want to be very clear on this point. Alex Kidd was not a mascot character. Alex Kidd in Miracle World was a game created to challenge the Super Mario Bros. franchise. It was deliberately a platform game 
like Super Mario Brothers because it was their answer to that game. But there is a difference between being a lead platform game and being a mascot character. A mascot character is someone who is going to appear in official company literature, in official company art. It's going to be plastered on all sorts of press releases. It's going to be mentioned constantly. It's going to be in the advertising. It's going to exist well outside of just the game that it was created to appear in. Alex Kidd was never that. Alex Kidd was never a character that was being used outside of his own game series as a larger Sega kind of mascot. And in fact, there's interviews. I can't remember if this was in Shmuplation's translation or if it was in John Skispaniak's oral history, because in both places there are interviews with the creator of Alex Kidd. I think it was on Shmuplation's, though, where someone asked him about Alex Kidd in, in relation to mascot kind of stuff. And he specifically said in that interview, Alex Kidd never became a mascot character for Sega. That was just not a thing. Now, if Alex Kidd and Miracle World or one of its sequels had sold a million bajillion copies, I'm sure they would have done more marketing around the character and the character might have become a mascot. But he was not built as a mascot. He was not used as a mascot. Mario was a mascot in the 8-bit era. Alex Kidd was not. So Sega definitely had no equivalent to Mario, especially in the 8-bit era. That's exactly correct. But Hayanakiyama knew that this would be something important to have in the 16-bit era, in the forthcoming console war uh, between Nintendo and Sega, centered around the Super Famicom slash SNES, and the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis. There's some difference in memory between the principal players that were involved in the creation of the character of Sonic. And for that reason, we can't get a complete, clear, and accurate picture of what happened when precisely. But we know enough that we can tell the story in a pretty coherent manner. And the story has not really been told properly in a lot of the individual sources out there on the Internet. So, uh, you know, this will be a good one of those stories to kind of work through and tease out and get a little more accurate, even though there's still going to be some gaps in it. All right. The creation of Sonic starts with two people, really. Programmer, Yuji Naka, and artist, Naoto Oshima. The very first confusion comes with whether the two of them were partnered together yet at the time that Sonic was created. Because Oshima kind of remembers that they were, whereas I think Naka remembers coming on later. Again, I'm not sure which version is exactly accurate, so we'll, we'll tease that out a little bit. There were two things that were going on simultaneously that often get lumped together into one thing. One of those things is that Sega was looking for a mascot. The other of those things is that Sega was looking for a Mario killer as a video game, as a, an actual program. These concepts did not necessarily need to be linked. I mean, they end up being linked. I mean, Sonic becomes both the mascot and, and his game becomes the Mario killer, but they weren't necessarily intrinsically linked. They were a couple of different things going on. The Mario killer thing was really something that was going on in product development alone, obviously, because that's where you make the games. But the mascot thing was 
company-wide. Everyone in any branch of the company was welcome to submit something that might be usable as a mascot character. Naoto Oshima was an artist of the, at the company. He had joined the company in 1987, and he had done work on a few different games. Probably the most notable one that he worked on was Fantasy Star, the role-playing game. As many artists are, he was always drawing. I mean, he was constantly just coming up with character designs. Some of them were human, some of them were animals, some of them were anthropomorphic, doesn't matter. He had notebooks full of characters. Most of them were never actually going to be used with anything, but he's just constantly drawing. So when the call goes out to uh, create a mascot character of some kind... At the time, in addition to be working in game design, Oshima was also doing a lot of work with the stationary department of the company. So he was working with designs, he was working with characters, and as I said, he was always doodling on his own as well. So when the call came out to create a main character, an iconic mascot kind of character for some kind of action game, he submitted some designs. Uh, and. His design was one of 200 designs that were actually submitted to the head of the company. And uh, from that, they came up with a series of four finalists. There was a wolf, a bulldog, a human that had kind of an egg-like head, and Oshima's submission, which was a blue rabbit. A blue rabbit, not a blue hedgehog. That's right. It was a rabbit. In fact, I'm not even sure if he was blue at that time, but he was definitely a rabbit. A wascally rabbit? <laughs> uh, well, you know, probably more of an Oswald kind of rabbit for all you deep-cut Disney fans out there. The idea of this rabbit was that he could pick up objects with his ears and throw them. So that was kind of the action character element of it. And he kind of had the big Disney-like eyes and all of that kind of stuff going on. This was the character that was selected. On the other side of this, you had the group that was getting together to try to create a Mario Killer kind of platform game. And the main mover on that side of things was Yuji Naka. Naka was a self-taught programmer. He never went to school for it, but he was incredibly, incredibly good at it. He was also a fan of video games going way, way back, particularly Namco arcade games in the early 1980s. And in 1983, he actually planned to enter the same Enix programming contest that brought Yuji Horii and Koichi Nakamura to Enix's attention. The two of them, of course, then going on later to do Dragon Quest together. Naka did not actually enter the contest, however, because he got too ambitious and was creating too elaborate a game, and he missed the deadline. Oh. So after that, he applied around, and uh, he really wanted to work at Namco. Namco rejected him, probably because he was self-taught, but both Taito and Sega were willing to hire him, and he chose Sega. It was a good time for him to join, probably the reason that they were interested in having him, despite his lack of formal training, which in the U.S. wouldn't matter very much, but in Japan is much more of a no-no, is that they were getting ready to launch their 
SC3000 slash SG1000 home computer video game console stuff, and they needed lots of games quickly for that system. They were bringing in a lot of new and inexperienced people to make those games, and then having groups of two or three people churn out a game every three months to really beef up the library. So Yuji Naka was assigned to the group that was doing games for the SG-1000. Uh, He continued working on console games as the SG-1000 was upgraded into the Mark III and into the Master System, and uh, he remained a programmer when the Genesis launched. He created a very important early game for the Mega Drive, which was the port of Ghouls and Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Now, Ghouls and Ghosts is a Capcom game, but Capcom gave Sega permission to do the porting of a couple of their games to the Genesis. Of course, Capcom's not going to be able to do this itself because Capcom is in with Nintendo, and Nintendo has their exclusivity agreements, so they're not going to want to bring their games to the Mega Drive Genesis themselves, but they gave Sega permission to port a couple on their own, and Yuji Naka was the one in charge of porting Ghouls and Ghosts. That was a pretty technically challenging game to get on uh, a 16-bit console hardware because it was a fairly recent and pretty advanced game in the arcade. So it took a lot of programming tricks to be able to get that to work properly. And the main thing that really had to get he had to get working was uh, scrolling happening at a fairly high speed. Ghouls and Ghosts is no Sonic the Hedgehog when it comes to the speed of play. But it's still a game that moves pretty quickly with pretty fast action, and if you don't get some good smooth scrolling going, there's not going to be much of interest there. Uh, So he created that port very successfully, and the game did very well. It was after that he started working with a group on uh, some game involving robots, a science fiction game, but it wasn't coming together very well, so the project ended up being cancelled. After that, he was kind of given his pick of what to try next because uh, he was still a very well-regarded programmer. Not only had he done the Ghouls and Ghosts thing, but on Fantasy Star, he was responsible for the 3D dungeons in the game, and 3D dungeons on an 8-bit master system was a pretty darn impressive feat. So one of the projects they had going that hadn't really started yet just had the code name Defeat Mario. And so he decided that's really what he wanted to do. Defeat Mario in Epic combat. (laughs) That's right. So this is the point where some of the the initial contradiction comes in. From Naka's account, it's hard to tell with the timeline of the different uh, people talking about this whether Oshima's drawing of the rabbit and submission of the rabbit came before or after they were already working on this Mario Killer game together. Because there's some implication that you know, the mascot contest was for an action game, and so Oshima submitted that and then got to work on the game, and then there's the other side where it's sometimes told that they were already working on the game, and then they submitted the mascot to the contest, but if the game they were working on was already the Mario Killer game and the mascot contest was for the Mario Killer game, it it's all very jumbled. So I, I don't know the exact sequence of events there, but one way or another, you ended up with Naka and Oshima working on this Mario Killer game and having this rabbit character that Oshima drew and submitted to a mascot contest that was accepted to be the protagonist of this game. Somehow we get there, (laughs) to the two of them working together. They were kind of working across purposes. Naka really wanted to make something 
fast. I mean, that was his prime motivator. He liked fast cars. He liked thrill stuff. And he really felt that if they were creating a Mario killer, the thing that he didn't like about the Super Mario Brothers games was not only did they often have a pretty sedate pace, and that was especially true of Super Mario World, which even dialed back the intensity of the game uh, vis- uh, you know, compared to Super Mario Brothers 3. We talked about how, uh, in our Mario episode, how Nintendo and how Miyamoto and Tezuka saw Super Mario World as a new entry point for people to get into the series since it was the first game on a new platform, and so deliberately dialed back the difficulty. And they also dialed back a lot of the speed. They put an emphasis on exploration rather than getting through levels quickly. And Naka didn't like that. He didn't understand why, if he, was, if he got good at the game, why it should take him the same amount of time to get through the level when he was really good at it as it would take someone who was a novice. Obviously, if you're really bad at the level, you'll die a bunch of times, and that'll take you longer. But all else being equal, if you're a good player at the game or you're a ant player at the game, you tend to get through it at the same speed. Now, those people out there that are speedrunning Super Mario Brothers in under 10 minutes would argue that that's not true. And right, I mean, if you're a really good player, you can speed through these games faster. But he still felt that there really wasn't a mechanism there to speed everything up if you were really good at what you were doing. So he wanted an action game that was not only fast, but rewarded a good player by making it even faster, the better at the game you are and the more you optimized your route. Uh, In a way, he was one of the first developers to be considering speedrunning, though the concept of speedrunning didn't exist then, and it's not like he was really creating a game where he thought people would challenge each other to to get through it in the fastest time, but it's the same idea of the better you are at the game, the faster it should go. Oshima had a rabbit character who picked things up and threw them. You can already tell just by, if you stop and think about it, that that's a contradiction in how things are going to play out in a game like this, because if you're having to pick up items and throw them, that means you're no longer moving forward. That means you're no longer going fast. You're pausing to take time out of your busy day to pick up a barrel or something and hurl it at an enemy. Gotta go slow. (laughs) Gotta throw slow. In slow-mo. Yeah, it it just doesn't work with the concept. So they quickly realize that this rabbit character is not going to work. So at this point, uh, a third person joins the team, a person that doesn't always get the same amount of recognition as Naka or Oshima does, but who is really just as important, if not more important uh, than the two of them. Well, not more important, but just as important as the two of them in making this whole thing work. And that's Hirokasu Yasuhara. Yasuhara is a more experienced planner, which is the Japanese word for a game designer, than either Naka or Oshima. And so he's brought on board to kind of supervise the project and also to serve as the primary planner and the primary level designer. So the three of them start putting their heads together and trying to figure out what to do. Yasuhara was actually the one that created the solution to this impasse, the beginning of the solution to this impasse. He said if they're really going to make a game where the character is going really, really fast and is not stopping for anything and is just constantly moving forward, then we want this to be a game that uses only one button. 
So you have your directional pad, that doesn't count as a button in this case, to move around, and then you have your one button, presumably, for jumping. You know, to kind of distill this down to core, core game mechanics that keep you moving forward at all times. So then, you know, the way Yasuhara put it, if you have a character that all they can do is jump, then you have to figure out a way where the act of running and jumping is not in any way distinct from the act of attacking enemies. Now, obviously, the idea of jumping on enemies to kill them is something that already existed. Mario jumped on enemies to kill them. But with Mario, that, that jump had to be targeted, very targeted. I mean, if you hit them on the side during your jump, or you hit them from below, hit them directly from below, not like hit them on a brick above you, but hit them directly from below, or hit them in any other way except the exact way the game wants you to, the enemy kills you. There's still a certain amount of slowing down and taking time and precision that goes into executing a Mario jump. What we're talking about for this game is we need an attack that can be accomplished just by jumping, and it's an attack that has to be pretty much universally successful while jumping. No matter how you hit the enemy during your jump, the enemy has to to be killed. That makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. So you have to almost change your mode when you're jumping into something that's universally capable of doing damage to the enemy no matter what you're doing. And you probably want some way of doing that where you can initiate that mode to some extent without even jumping itself. Right, exactly. Just just something that can be activated, uh, you know, even if you're just going really fast in a certain way, say. Uh, and so that's how they came up with the concept of having a character that rolled into a ball. That's that's kind of the next thing that they got together out of this. And that's very visually distinct. You're going from a standing running character to a ball mode character. Then you know that if I'm in that ball mode, as long as I'm in that ball mode. I'm more or less invincible. Exactly. And then that that goes in with the fast thing, too, because you can have them kind of spinning so fast that they end up in a ball. You can have them jumping and turn into a ball. There's a lot of ways you can have your character transform into a ball. Uh, And then once that ball transformation has occurred, then, right, subject to certain limitations just to increase the challenge of the game, you have a character that is always going to be pushing through, attacking, destroying things when they're in that ball form. So then the question comes, well, what kind of character do we want to use for that? Because, you know, it's this weird kind of thing. I mean, it's a fantasy game, so the the answer is, I mean, whatever the heck character you want. I mean, it doesn't matter. But still, just like when Miyamoto was creating Mario, and he wanted there to be some certain level of realism to the actions going on in that world, he gave Mario a hat because he couldn't animate the hair. Well, nothing said he had to animate the hair, but he felt that if he didn't animate the hair, something would be lost in the realism, so he put a hat on him. In the same way here, if they're going to have a protagonist that rolls into a ball, they want it to make logical sense that that character is in a ball shape, and rabbits just don't roll into balls. What about an armadillo? Exactly, an armadillo, and they very seriously considered an armadillo. That was actually one of their primary uh, favorites to move forward with. And here I was thinking I was being facetious. Oh, <laughs> no, 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 no. They thought very, very uh, hard about an armadillo, but there was one problem with an armadillo. 
the armadillo is thought of as a slow creature. It moves kind of slow. When it turns into a ball, it just gets kind of stiff and just kind of sits there. It's more of a protective stand-in-place thing, like a turtle entering its shell. And so an armadillo just didn't seem like it conveyed the same sense of being fast. You don't see Speedy the armadillo going out there. You usually think of an armadillo as this slow-moving tank, advancing forward, unstoppable. If we wanted to have slow-moving tankadillo, we would do that. (laughs) That's right. So they discarded the armadillo, and, you know, they were looking at all sorts of other things that may curl into a ball in this or that circumstance, and they finally decided on the hedgehog. It's not like a hedgehog is really has a connotation of being a fast animal either, but I, I think the hedgehog had two things going for it. One, I don't think anyone really did have much of a conception in their own mind already of a hedgehog, so you didn't have any prejudice to work against there because a hedgehog was kind of a clean slate in terms of the general public paying attention to what they are and what they do. And number two, of course, the hedgehog is a spiky creature, and when it curls up into a ball, you know, it it has spikes that, that are used as a defense mechanism. And so that felt like a kind of logical reason why this character rolled up into a ball would be able to damage enemies, because it's a spiky character. Again, that has nothing to do with how an actual hedgehog functions out in the wild, but so what, essentially? I mean, they figure that was good enough. They kind of combined the two ideas in the end. They went more towards the the hedgehog, but they kind of combined the idea of an armadillo having a protective ball and a hedgehog having spikes and uh, decided to kind of combine these concepts together but make it more like a hedgehog because of the kind of slow connotation of, of an armadillo. So at this point... Oshima actually pulled out another one of his old sketches because he has a bunch of those. He had, he had once done a sketch of a sort of hedgehog-like creature that uh, he had called Mr. Needlemouse. In some tellings of this story, again, it's some of the confusion, some tellings of the story have Mr. Needlemouse actually being the mascot character that Oshima submitted. But that's not true. Uh, Mr. Needlemouse was just a really old character that he had come up with at some time. And then now that they were thinking Hedgehog, it's like, well, I've kind of already got this character in place. So he pulled out Mr. Needlemouse. And Mr. Needlemouse is already a long way to the look of Sonic the Hedgehog. He's already kind of got that spiky mane. Uh, The eyes are already kind of there, kind of that nose and lower face structure is kind of already there. So a lot of the character is already present in Mr. Needlemouse, though it took a little bit of doing to finally get him into his final form. The main part uh, that he had to come up with is Mr. Needlemouse was just a black and white sketch and he had to decide how he wanted to bring it to life in full color. So he came up with a couple of things. Of course, the main color of the character is blue. And the color of blue that was chosen was very similar to the official color of Sega, Sega the company, because, of course, their logo at the time was a blue logo. So that was a big part of it. But he wasn't just blue because Sega had blue as their primary color. The other reason he chose blue 
is that that was a color that had a connotation. I don't know if this was in Japanese culture generally or just for Oshima himself, but the color blue had a connotation of peace and coolness. So, you know, peace, he's, he's kind of a good guy. He's fighting for peace and coolness. You know, they, they knew they wanted some kind of, some character that was a little edgier than Mario. So blue kind of made sense for all of those reasons. His red shoes were an homage to Santa Claus. Santa Claus, really? Yeah. <laughs> I know, that, that sounds kind of strange, but uh, Santa Claus's primary color is red, and kids like Santa Claus, so... I thought it was only the Coca-Cola Santa Claus that was red, and the true Santa Claus is green. There really is no true Santa Claus, if you want to get into that history, but that's well beyond the scope of this podcast. <laughs> the uh, popular conception of (laughs) the character of Santa Claus is red, and so the shoes were red. Now, the shape of the shoes, not the color, but the shape of the shoes were inspired by Michael Jackson, because Oshima is a huge Michael Jackson fan, and the shape of them are kind of similar to the shoes that Michael Jackson wore in Smooth Criminal or at least I think that's probably the one Oshima's referring to. They're not the same color, they're not the same type of shoe, but in that music video, Michael Jackson, and of course we can put some of this in the, in the show notes too, Michael Jackson was kind of wearing these white, uh, not sure exactly what they are, I'm not sure if they're spats or what, but there's this kind of two-color look where he's got this bulky upper part that's white and then the lower part of the shoe that's black. And if you look at the way uh, Sonic shoes look, He's got that part that almost looks like socks, but they're not socks. They're actually part of the shoe itself. I don't think he actually wears socks. You've got this upper part that's kind of white and and bulky, and then you have the lower part that's the actual shoe. So that part of the design comes from the Michael Jackson music video, and then the uh, color is, is for Santa Claus. So that's how we get to a character of Sonic the Hedgehog. That's how we get from, I submitted a rabbit for a mascot contest to... Hey, look, it's a blue hedgehog with red shoes, and he goes really fast. So, uh, now that they had their character, they had to finish designing their game. There were a few things that they wanted to do. They wanted it to look graphically impressive, because, again, they're trying to stand out from the competition. They decided to go with this polygon look for the graphics. The game does not use polygons. It's not like Donkey Kong Country where they rendered it on some super expensive hardware as polygons and then they rendered it down to be two-dimensional sprite images. Everything is sprite-based art, but they did deliberately make it have a kind of polygonal faux 3D look to all of the background graphics, specifically because they thought that that would evoke some kind of futuristic graphical idea that made it stand out from the, uh, the Super Mario Brothers games. For gameplay, of course, they wanted to make sure that the game was just going fast, fast, fast. The whole thing is about Sonic getting into a groove and bouncing from point to point and just blitzing through levels. So uh, they were deliberately putting in all sorts of conveyances from spring pads to loop-de-loops to bumpers to just enhance this feeling of moving through a, a level quickly. They were inspired a lot by pinball, which shouldn't come as a surprise. Not all of the levels are 100% pinball-like, but there are some levels that are very, very, very pinball-like. So that was a major inspiration. Particularly the bonus stages. Right. 
So that's basically it. I mean, there's not much to say about the complexity of the gameplay. I mean, one thing that I think held Sonic back in the end, even though the original games were, of course, very popular, is that at the end of the day, the gameplay was fairly simplistic. Uh, you know, it doesn't have the same intricate level design thought that goes into a, a Super Mario Brothers game. But that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. They weren't trying to be that kind of game. They were trying to be something different from that. And I think it's fair to say they succeeded. Sonic the Hedgehog is released in 1991. And as we talked about in our Sega Nintendo episode, it immediately strikes a chord. It's a, it's a period of time when attitude is in, when edgy is in, when kind of anti-authority is in. This is when The Simpsons is toppling The Cosby Show as the most popular comedy in America. It's when grunge is toppling hair metal, slick overproduced hair metal being toppled by raw, angry, flannel grunge. It's kind of a period of becoming more raw, becoming more real, becoming more edgy. And so in that context, you have something like Super Mario World, which is really well built, is really slickly designed, has good graphics, but it's kind of cartoony and it's kind of plodding. You're moving along slowly. It feels more kid-like. And then, bam, you have Sonic, who's fast and who's tapping his foot and is blowing through things. And it just feels like something. They're trying to capture an older audience already. They're trying to capture teenagers. A character like Sonic just attracts teenagers more. It feels, like I said, more rebellious, more I'll do my own thing, more, you know, screw you guys. When he's not moving forward, he's tapping his foot, being like, you know, hurry up. Why aren't we moving anywhere? It just, it just feels like a, a game for the times. At first, Naka and Oshima and Yasuhara actually wanted to make him even more, quote, hip and cool by making him a member of a band and having a hot girlfriend named Madonna with blonde hair and big boobs. Uh, about that. This is really true. Again, Oshima was a big fan of Michael Jackson. There was this idea that music is cool, that popular music is cool, and we can make Sonic even cooler by having him be part of a band and have this girlfriend. Well, when that part of it reached Sega of America... Because unlike some of their past initiatives, Nakayama at Sega was very concerned that this game be a worldwide hit, which meant that he wanted to elicit feedback from the American branch as well in the design of the game, which was fairly unusual at the time for a, a Japanese company to do with its American subsidiary. But Nakayama really felt that was important. And uh, the group at Sega of America was just like, no, we can't do this. What is this character? This is a disaster. I mean, at first, they were just completely against it. Even though Sega Japan wanted input, they weren't going to just scrap everything on the word of the American branch. To just say, oh my god, what are you thinking? Get rid of everything, was never going to be a starter. But a marketing executive at Sega, Margaret Schroeder, did take a pass at the character. She suggested that they lose the band and lose the girlfriend. And I mean, the girlfriend thing, I mean, it really didn't make sense because, I mean, it was a human woman, <laughs> you know. We're not dealing with a pink hedgehog. No, exactly. It's not, you know, Rose or whatever that character's name is. I, I, do, not, I do not know Sonic lore. I'm sorry, people. But no, this is not, you know, there's an extended Sonic family later, obviously. 
including female members. But no, this this was just a, a buxom blonde in a, in a sexy red dress named Madonna that was palling around with her blue hedgehog boyfriend. That's a pretty non- incongruous element. I mean, I think that it was probably just as well that they cut that. They also softened the character a bit. Sonic had very pronounced fangs in his original incarnation, in the original drawings. Obviously, when we're talking about pixel art, that kind of stuff isn't showing up, but we're talking about promotional materials and, and outside art. He had pretty pronounced fangs, and the Sega of America people thought that that made him seem too scary or mean as a character, too aggressive. I mean, obviously, it's an in-your-face, gotta-go-fast game, but there's a difference between that kind of aggressiveness and hey, I'm going to bite your head off with my fangs, aggressiveness. They altered the face a little bit. They got rid of the fangs. They dumped the band. They dumped the girlfriend. Sega Japan was not happy. Naka and Oshima and Yasuhara were not happy because they had their vision and they didn't want these interlopers telling them what to do with their vision. But in this case, Nakayama did feel that it was important enough to make sure the game had worldwide appeal that he deferred to his American branch on some of these issues and these small changes were made. There's even a story that had never been told until recently that's really kind of bizarre. And uh, it comes from last year's Game Developers Conference when Yasuharu Noshima did a post-mortem of Sonic. Uh, And he described how he had this elaborate backstory that there was like this pilot, human pilot, and like he had nose art on his plane of like this hedgehog, and the hedgehog in his nose art was Sonic. I mean, that's, who knows? (laughs) Um, You know, you can watch that talk if you want any more information on that crazy tangent. (laughs) So, you know, they were giving a lot of thought to the backstory of the character, which is kind of funny, because at the end of the day, the character really has no backstory. Once it meets its final form in the game, you are hedgehog, your animal buddies have been trapped in robots, go save them. Quickly. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I'd mentioned that one of the mascot finalists was an egg-like human, as you can probably expect at this point. That character, that finalist character, was reworked into Dr. Robotnik, who is a very rotund, egg-like human being. And looks all evil and takes all the poor defenseless animals and puts them in capsules and little robots and other horrible things. That's right. Respect the lore. Respect the lore. So that's Sonic. Of course, uh, Sega of America makes the decision to bundle Sonic the Hedgehog with the system. It becomes a real system seller, a real system mover. The game's a huge hit. In advance of the game, they actually do a promotional tour around the country where they go to shopping malls and show kids Mario and Sonic games, Mario World and Sonic the Hedgehog side by side and have them play both and then say which one they liked better. And, uh, you know, like something like 80 some percent of them said that they liked Sonic better. I think in hindsight, I think when we look back at the games of those eras, and I think when game publications do look back at those eras, you know, the Mario games get far more highly regarded. I think Mario World, it's fair to say, is probably a more highly regarded game today than Sonic the Hedgehog. Not that people think Sonic the Hedgehog's bad, I'm just talking comparatively speaking. But I think at the time, it was just so fresh, it was just so different. We'd had a few adventures with Mario, and even though each one added some creative wrinkles that the one before it didn't have, you kind of knew what a Mario game was. Sonic was just so new and so different, and the Genesis was so new and so different, and the marketing campaign was so slick that it really struck a chord with the youth of the time and, of course, became a, a massive, massive hit. 
So where do you go from Sonic the Hedgehog? Sonic 2. Yes. And by the way, the is his middle name. It is actually capital the because when they went to trademark the name or yeah, trademark the name in the US, Al Nilsson, the marketing guy, made sure they trademarked his name as Sonic the Hedgehog. So the the, the is properly capitalized because it's a middle name. Respect the lore. Okay. Yeah, you, you do a part two. Well, there's just one problem, and that problem is Yuji Naka. Yuji Naka did not feel his efforts on the game were appreciated enough. He felt that he was not getting paid enough. He felt that he was not being given enough freedom to do things the way he wanted to do them. He was completely fed up with Sega, and he quit the company. He left. He actually left. This is more well-known now because it's been told a few times in, in the last couple of years, but until the last couple of years, this is something that nobody really knew. He quit. He was gone. I'm taking my ball and going home. But then fate intervened because there was a new organization within Sega and within Sega of America being set up called the Sega Technical Institute. I don't even think we talked about that in our great Sega coverage. We might not have because it was tangential to what we were doing in terms of the console war. The idea with the Sega Technical Institute is that Sega was, as I said, really keen to make sure that the Genesis was a worldwide success. And I think they probably knew on some level that it was, it was really going to have to succeed outside of Japan, because we've talked before about the way the Japanese market works, the way that once something is a winner, everybody goes for the winner. You don't really have 55-45 market share fights. You have 90-10 market share fights. And we talked about how Nintendo had the entire distribution network, the Shoshinkai, completely wrapped around its finger. They had all the third parties wrapped around their finger. So you really weren't going to see... I think they knew. I mean, they wanted to be obviously successful in Japan. But I think they kind of knew that they weren't going to be. So it was very important that the company succeed in the United States. But there was a certain level of, I don't know if arrogance is the right word to use. That may put too much of a negative connotation on it. But there was a certain level of... Self-assuredness? Yeah, self-assuredness and a belief that the Japanese really were better at game design and at making games. So they didn't just want to have American staff creating American games. They liked the idea of having their Japanese staff creating their games for everybody. But at the same time, they kind of understood that if they wanted to create games that Americans were going to like, it would make sense to have Americans involved in the creation of those games. So uh, Hisashi Suzuki who was the head of R&D in Sega Japan, came up with the idea to create this organization called the Sega Technical Institute that would be based in the United States and would be managed by an American, but would combine U.S. and Japanese staff and have them work together in order to create games that would appeal to the American market. To lead that organization, uh, they chose Mark Cherney, someone we've talked about in passing several times before on the show. Mark Cherney had been a child prodigy programming genius. He got a job with Atari when he was like 17 or something. Uh, he created Marble Madness there. And then he went and actually worked for Sega in Japan. 
And uh, he created their 3D glasses peripheral for their master system, which we mentioned for about 10 seconds in our virtual reality episode. Mm -hmm. And he was kind of ready to come back to the States. He had not meant to stay in Japan as long as he did. He was ready to come home. And so Suzuki suggested that he head up this new organization, STI, Sega Technical Institute, in the United States, which he agreed to do. Cherney was working on Master System games when he was in Japan, so he was working... Uh, I don't think he and Naka ever collaborated on a title together, but they were working together in the same department on the same kind of stuff. So they'd become friends. And so Cherney convinced Naka to come work for him at STI. So Naka actually did. He quit Sega. He was no longer part of Sega Enterprises in Japan. But then very quickly, I mean, before anything had happened, before any word got out anywhere that the creator of Sonic was no longer at Sega, not that they really followed designers back then in the same way we do today, he already had a new home at the Sega Technical Institute, so he ended up never actually leaving Sega. Oshima decided to remain in Japan, but both Naka and Yasuhara joined this group of employees that came to the United States. And so because two-thirds of the talent behind Sonic ended up at STI, it was only logical that the Sega Technical Institute would be the organization that would create the next Sonic game, Sonic the Hedgehog 2. And that's exactly what happened. It ended up being a very difficult process. The Japanese staff were very late in arriving. The idea was that the Japanese staff would already be there at the time the American staff were being hired and then they'd integrate them together as a team. Well, Sega had never done something like this before. They got them the wrong visas. Oops. They didn't get them the standard work visas like your your average tech grunt would get today. They were getting them these visas that were reserved for, like, Olympic athletes and world-renowned scientists, you know, just high-level people. And, you know, Yuji Naka is a great programmer, and Yasuhara is a great video game designer. But even today, nobody really puts that kind of work in the same uh, space as Olympic athletes, and back then they sure as heck didn't. So that was the wrong visa. So not only were the visas denied for almost the entire staff that they meant to take over to STI, but Sega was actually, as a penalty, temporarily blacklisted from asking for more visas. So they had to wait an extra long time to get the proper visas in order to bring the people in they wanted to. Exactly. And the consequence of that is that all the American staff was hired, all the American staff was already in the building before the Japanese staff even got there, uh, by a good couple of months at least. So the chance to kind of integrate the teams kind of passed at that point. They did still work together on Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Yuji Naka led development. The Japanese staff were mostly the programmers and the planners, and I think the U.S. staff were mostly providing art though I think they probably provided in other areas as well. Yuji Naka is a very tough person to work for. Everyone that's that's worked with him has said so. I mean, he's brilliant. Uh, he's a brilliant programmer. He has a clear vision as a designer. He works hard, but he's a perfectionist who demands perfection out of everyone who works for him, and he doesn't always have the best people skills for relaying how he needs his team to be perfectionists for him. That's bad enough when everybody is within the same culture and everyone is within the same language. 
when you add a cultural and language divide on top of this difficult management style. Especially a cultural divide as stark and different as the Japanese culture versus the American culture. Exactly. I mean, I think we've probably talked about this at some point in some episode along the line, but Japanese game development is very, very hierarchical, where you do your thing, and if you are not a person in, in a decision-making role, you do not have input, you just, you just do. You just do what your higher-ups tell you, and it also has a culture of you will stay at the office for 12 to 15 hours a day every day. You may not be working 12 to 15 hours. There may be a three-hour period in there, literally, where you just go take a nap, but you will be at the office for all of this time, and you do not go home until your boss goes home. That is a very much part of the culture, whereas in the U.S., game development, especially back then with small teams, was more collaborative. Uh, There were roles, but there were no barriers to people in different roles bringing up ideas, pitching stuff back and forth with each other. Certainly crunch and long hours are very much a part of video game work in the West. Long hours are not unique to Japan, but it's a different dynamic. It's not the you're here as long as your boss is here dynamic. It's more choose your own hours a little bit. Uh, I'm not talking about today where it's more structured, but I'm talking about back in this, this era. Choose your own hours as long as you're there a certain number of hours a day. We don't care if those hours are 10 to midnight <laughs> as opposed to 9 to 5. And certainly sometimes people working on different aspects of a game will be in at different times because they have different schedules. You're not tied to what your boss is doing. So it was a torturous development. And Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is the only game that was done at STI where the American and Japanese staff actually worked together. The Japanese staff stayed after Sonic the Hedgehog 2, but there was never again that same collaboration. It just didn't work very well. And part of that was cultural barrier. Part of that was poor timing because they weren't brought in at the same time. I do think part of it was probably Yuji Naka is just difficult to work for. But you throw it all together and and it didn't gel. Uh, but Sonic the Hedgehog 2 still still turned out pretty well. The, the main thing with Sonic 2 is that Yuji Naka had really wanted to have a two-player mode in the original Sonic the Hedgehog. And they just didn't have the time to figure out how that would work, because that's an incredible technical challenge. Because not only do you have to get the split screen going, but in a game that's all about speed and going fast, you have to somehow make it so that on the two split screens, even though they're going at different paces and are in different parts of the world, uh, the whole game program doesn't go kablooey while trying to keep track of all that. So there was just no time to do that in the original Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 introduced a new character. Tails. Yes, Tails, whose official name is Miles Prower. Get it? Because it's miles per hour. Ha, ha, ha. Respect the lore. But of course he's colloquially known as Tails, and I mean even within the game he's known as Tails because that's a far less lame name. So Tails was created by a, an artist that was a new member of the team named Yosushi Yamaguchi. Once again, there was an internal contest held to create a second character. They knew they wanted a, a second character for the game, and they knew they didn't just want a palette swap like Mario and Luigi. So they had another contest to get another character. 
the character of Tails, he's a fox, but more specifically, he's based on the uh, Kitsune, which is a kind of magical fox spirit or demon in Japanese legend that's, that's very mischievous and very tricksome. The one with multiple tails. Exactly. With multiple tails. They can have up to nine tails. He, he deliberately chose uh, to give him just the two tails because in keeping with this idea of Sonic being edgy and uh, appealing to a teenage demographic, he wanted a character that kind of evoked youth and inexperience, but at the same time, the same brashness that makes Sonic so appealing. And so by just giving him two tails, it gives him the feeling of, of youth and inexperience as opposed to being in his fully realized full form. So, yes, that's how we get Tails. Actually, Yamaguchi named him Miles. Miles Prower was his name for the character. It was marketing that decided to name him Tails. I think they wanted a pithier name. Sonic is a name that defines literally the primary trait of the character, which is that he goes at Sonic speeds. He's fast. Sonic boom! <laughs> right. Um, Tails is a character that's defined by his tails and his ability to, you know, use them as rotor blades or whatever. And so it makes sense to give him the same pithy name, though Yamaguchi was not happy <laughs> about that. Uh, and so there was a compromise where Tails was his nickname. So he's Miles Tails Prower. I don't know why Sonic has lore, but Sonic has lots of lore. And the later you go in the video game series, the more lore it has. And I think even Sonic diehards agree that that's part of when things started going downhill. Sonic doesn't need lore. Sonic just needs speed, people. Just speed. But really, think of it from a marketing or even if you're trying to accept Sonic and this new character. Are you going to play Sonic and Miles go defeat Dr. Robotnik? Miles helps Sonic as he goes for Or he's going to be Sonic and Tails goes and defeats Dr. Robotnik. Tails helps Sonic by flying around and defeating enemies. Yes. So, of course, the big thing that they did with Sonic 2, and we did talk about this in our one of our Nintendo vs. Sega episodes, is that they decided they knew this was going to be big. They knew this was going to be really big because the first Sonic was a huge hit. They were kind of starting to push against Nintendo, and they kind of felt that they were getting to the point where they were starting to, to pull even with them and maybe even pass them in the United States. So they decided that they wanted to do a worldwide, simultaneous release of this game. As we talked about in our episode before, there were no street dates for video games back then. Not even nationally. We're not even talking about an international street date. There were no national street dates. There was a period of time when production on games began. And then there was a period of time when those games started shipping to retailers. And some retailers would always get games before other retailers just because we live in a world of Newtonian physics with distance and time and stuff logistics logistics is a thing <laughs> that's right so you know when you got your product you were allowed to start selling it so you would have rollouts over the period of a week maybe a couple of weeks as everyone was getting their product the idea that you would ship it all out and tell retailers to hold on to it till a set street date and then release it all at once just did not exist at that time retailers go i got a product I must now put it on the shelf so I don't have to pay storage fees. <laughs> right. 
But Sega uh, was able to wrangle this worldwide release. Japan kind of welched on it a little bit because reasons. But uh, they essentially had this worldwide release November the 21st, 1992, which was a Tuesday. So, of course, it was Sonic Tuesday. Marketing. <laughs> Though it is clever. I mean, I'll give them that. I mean, yeah, it's a little corny, but it's also pretty clever. I mean, you know, it sticks in the mind. Sonic Tuesday. And they had the simultaneous worldwide release, and they had big publicity for it, and, and it was a huge success. The game sold about 6 million copies total, which was huge for a non-bundled game back then. I mean, very, very few games from any publisher reached that high a level. The first Sonic, of course, was bundled. I mean, this, the first Sonic sold well over 10 million copies, but that's because it was a bundled game. How many it sold unbundled in Japan, I'm not exactly sure. But, uh, you know, it, it did very well, too. But Sonic 2 did, did even better. Meanwhile, while that was going on, I told you that Oshima was still back in Japan. He didn't join Naka and Yasuhara in going over to the United States. So, while Sonic 2 was being created in the U.S., Oshima was leading development on a Sonic game for the Sega CD. And this was done entirely in Japan. At first, the idea was actually that they were going to kind of make them in tandem. That the Sonic CD game was just going to be kind of a somewhat enhanced version of Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Maybe with some prettier music or some cutscenes or whatever people thought was a cool thing to use CDs for back circa 1992. But they decided, uh, in the end, actually, create a totally new game. I mean, it really wouldn't have worked trying to recreate Sonic 2 on the Sega CD because the mediums are so different, particularly when it comes to things like loading times. We can't have loading in Sonic. That would be not fast. Yes. <laughs> and you see, that Sega CD, that had a one-speed CD-ROM drive. It is hard today if you even still have a computer that has a CD-ROM drive in it. To conceptualize the horror of a 1X CD-ROM drive. <laughs> Back in my day, kids, yeah, we didn't settle for anything less than a 4X. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, yeah, they ended up creating a, a new game. That's where Amy Rose gets introduced. I don't know the story behind her introduction. It's not important. I don't respect the lore. But the point is... They ended up making this separate Sonic CD game in Japan at the same time that Naka was doing Sonic 2 in the U.S. So then, with the huge success of those two games, Yuji Naka got really, really ambitious and decided that he wanted to make Sonic 3 a 3D game. Now, when I say 3D, I don't mean full-on polygonal whatever, because Naka may have been uh, confident, but he was not so insane to think that a Sega Genesis could do all of that. But they did want to move to an isometric view for the third game. They wanted to give this illusion of depth, the illusion of 3D, and there was a new chip that was in development called the Sega Virtua Processor, the SVP chip, which was kind of their answer to the Super FX chip that Nintendo did. Uh, it was a chip that was going to allow for some amount of 3D modeling to be possible, even on a lowly Sega Genesis. The chip, unfortunately, ended up being delayed. 
and Sonic the Hedgehog 3 couldn't wait for it. So they, they had to ditch any kind of polygonal approach at that point. But they were still hoping to do something isometric. Unfortunately, it didn't work. But they lost a lot of time trying to get it to work. As a result, there was not going to be a new Sonic game for Christmas of 1993. Oh no, can't fail to meet Christmas time. That's right. At this point, STI, the American part of STI, I should say, because Yuji Naka and Yasuhara, they're still at STI too, but now we have clearly segregated. And when I say segregated, I don't mean that it was real, like, enforced segregation where it's like you're not allowed to work with each other. It's just that everybody kind of came to a mutual understanding that it would be better if the Americans did their thing over here and the the Japanese did their things over there. The Sonic team, not Sonic team, not with that official name that they take later, but the team working on Sonic was still at STI, but the Americans were separate. And so at this point, the Americans were brought in to save Christmas. They needed something Sonic that could be developed quickly, that could be ready in time for that all-important Christmas season. Because even though video games were no longer strictly seasonal in the early 1990s, there was still a huge emphasis on Christmas. That was still a very profitable time and still a very important time. And to not have your mascot character appear at Christmas was, for Sega, just an awful thought. Contrast that with Nintendo, where it's like, we released a Mario game, and then five years later, we released another Mario game. Whatever. (laughs) But Sega didn't think that way. Sega was very much more marketing-driven, and they needed a game for that Christmas 1993. When they were looking at the, the Sonic series... Uh, they decided that some of the most popular stages from the first game were the casino stages, where he's bouncing around all over the place and there's flashing lights and bumpers and it's very pinball-like. And so they decided, well, why don't we do a game derived from that whole pinball thing? So they assigned a new uh, developer named uh, Peter Morawick. Not sure exactly how he pronounces his name. Maybe it's Peter Morawick. I don't know, but it's M-O-R-A-W-I-E-C. I'm sure I'm horribly butchering it. My apologies. And uh, tasked him to uh, create this spinoff title. He was very much influenced by an Amiga game called Pinball Dreams, which uh, was considered to be an excellent pinball game. It was actually made by a group of people that called themselves Digital Illusion, but uh, Digital Illusion CE, which is uh, commonly known as DICE today. Before they were making Battlefield games for Electronic Arts, they were making pinball games for Amiga users. So he kind of used that style of of animation to kind of pitch the game, and then went off with a a team of people and uh, created the game. They even hired some outside contract programmers to help make sure they got the whole thing done in time kind of all hands on deck because they had a very short amount of time. So Sonic Spinball was not a particularly uh, noteworthy game. It didn't really add anything huge to the Sonic world, so to speak. But it got done on time, and it was reasonably well-received. It sold very well, and uh, it saved Christmas. 
but it was the one Sonic game, one completed Sonic game, that was not done by the Japanese staff. Meanwhile, the Japanese staff are getting more and more bogged down trying to make their Sonic the Hedgehog 3. The game itself is not in any way a disaster. I mean, it's, it's fine as far as that goes. The problem is... But the problem is, it's just taking too long. Of course, they've gone and introduced another character again, because they do things like that. This time we're talking about an echidna named Knuckles, who was actually not a fast character like all the others. His emphasis was on strength. They decided that since they had a character in Sonic that was based on speed, that as the games were becoming more elaborate, as the lore such as it is was becoming more elaborate, uh, they decided that if they were going to create a new character that it would be boring to just have that character be another gotta-go-fast kind of guy, and so they created Knuckles the Echidna as kind of a counterpoint who uses power and strength to get his way, unlike Sonic who does all of his dashing and spinning to get his way. They're creating a new character, they're trying and discarding the 3D approach, they're creating level after level after level after level, they're doing tons and tons of stuff, they keep a little bit of the 3D in some of the bonus stages because they didn't want to completely abandon their 3D, so there's a lot of stuff going on. And it's very clear that the game will not be ready before late 1994. Normally, that would be fine. They had Sonic Spinball at Christmas. They've bridged the gap. It's okay. There's just one problem. Starting on February the 2nd, 1994, 40 million McDonald's Happy Meals were going to include Sonic the Hedgehog toys. That's good. But there was going to be no Sonic the Hedgehog game at the time of the release of those Sonic the Hedgehog toys. That's bad. That's right, especially for a marketing-focused company like Sega. The game absolutely had to be out by February 1994, or the whole Sega world was going to end, I guess. Children would be crying in their Happy Meals because they had toys and no video game. I don't know. The point is, it was unacceptable to delay the game anymore. So they came up with a novel idea, and it was actually a very interesting idea. They split the game in two. Sonic 3 would release in early 1994. Sonic 4, which ended up being called Sonic and Knuckles, would release in late 1994. The Knuckles character would be pushed back to Sonic and Knuckles, would not be in Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and they would divide the levels kind of equally between the two products. But because the games had always been intended to be one game, they decided that they would make Sonic and Knuckles using a special cartridge that would allow you to plug the Sonic the Hedgehog 3 cartridge into it and then use Knuckles in all of the stages in Sonic the Hedgehog 3, because, of course, Knuckles was originally intended to be in those stages, so those stages had already been optimized for use of that character. And thus was the Tower of Sonic born. (laughs) Exactly. So they got their game Sonic 3 early in the year, they got their game Sonic and Knuckles late in the year. It was kind of starting to be Sonic Overkill at that point? Yeah, I think? 
Sonic 3 only sold about 1.8 million copies. Sonic and Knuckles didn't really sell, you know, sold about 1.2 or so million copies. They kind of sold about 3 million copies between them. You know, since they were already meant, always meant to be one game, I mean, 3 million in sales between them isn't the worst thing. But we could do a lot better. Right. I mean, you're going from 6 million in sales on Sonic the Hedgehog 2 to 3 million-ish for these two games combined. There's clearly some fatigue going on there. I mean, as I said, Sonic's kind of a one-trick pony. I mean, there's only so much that they could really do with the format. They added new characters and changed up stages some, but there's only so much you can do, and so releasing that many games in that short a period of time where they had to have one every year. So they had one in 91, one in 92. Uh, they had a spinoff in 93 because their game wasn't ready, but then two in 94, plus the CD game on top of that. It's just too much. Uh, plus they've got all the 8-bit versions because... You've got the Game Gear, and then you even had Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 both released on the Master System. As we discussed in our Sega episodes, the reason for that, I think, really, was that the Genesis, being a more expensive system, or the Mega Drive, rather, as they called it in Europe, was actually not selling as well in the early 90s as the Master System was. The Mega Drive did well in Europe, don't get me wrong, but the Master System was doing even better. And so there was uh, continued support for Master System games even after the Genesis had taken over because of the uh, popularity in Europe. So you had a lot of Sonic products. They kind of came out in rapid succession, and even though there were improvements between games, I mean, there really wasn't that much to distinguish them. And they just didn't have the same mainstream appeal anymore. I mean, if a third party released a game that sold 2 million units, that would be a fantastic showing. I mean, the third party would be over the moon, but first party, their flagship games are supposed to do better than that. Now, really think about this. If we were to, say, compare contrast to Nintendo with Mario, if Mario was putting out games like this every year and they barely have mm. any time to really innovate or come up with something new, you're just putting out more and more of the same. For example, Super Mario World was great. Then the next year, you have Super Mario World 2, the new adventure. Yes, I know about the Yoshi Island thing. That's completely different. The new adventure. We're in the Ice Kingdom now. Oh, we need to get another Mario game out because we have this tie-in. Let's just split Mario 3 up into Mario versus <laughs> Luigi. And then you can play Luigi if we have the second cartridge we put in. It's almost like an overexposure, pretty much. Yeah, this is right. your flagship guy. He's going out there. He's really marketing your company. But you need to pace that kind of exposure. Otherwise, people just go, I've had too much of it. You may have gotten the sense that Alex and I aren't necessarily huge Sonic fans. I think some of that, at least for me, I'm still a little traumatized from the 90s. <laughs> right. I've experienced Sonic, but it was almost like I was so hyper exposed to Sonic from marketing, from the few people I knew who actually had the game and went bonkers for it, that it just really put me off. With Mario, it's more, okay, there was more leisurely paced infusion of that. So I had time to sort of absorb each game and come to terms with that while with Sonic, which is like, well, I'm in your face. We're going to get this game out here. We're playing this next game. We're doing the next game. Third game. Fourth game. We're making a tower. 
well, why are you doing a tower yeah, that falls exactly. over and then all of a sudden <laughs> I lost all my progress? Uh, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. By the end of the Genesis era, I think it had, had been a little tarnished by all of that. And then they had real difficulty getting him into 3D because after Sonic 4, after Sonic and Knuckles, Naka and all the Japanese staff went back home to Japan. STI didn't go away, but STI was entirely American staff now. And Yuji Naka and Yasuhara went and reunited uh, with Oshima and created a development studio uh, within Sega called Sonic Team. But ironically, even though they were called Sonic Team, for the next few years they had nothing to do with Sonic at all. I think they were just as burned out as maybe you and I were on the whole Sonic idea. Naka wanted to do something else with his life. He was kind of done with Sonic for a while. And so for the Saturn, for the Sega Saturn, for the flagship game for that, they created a new franchise. They created the game Knights and spent all their effort on that instead of getting a Sonic game ready as a launch title. But even though Yuji Naka didn't want to work on Sonic, even though he took a break from Sonic, he still considered Sonic his thing, and he didn't really want anyone else working on Sonic. The company felt it was important that they have a Sonic game on the Saturn, if not at launch, at least soon after launch, because he is their flagship guy. I mean... With the exception of the GameCube, and who knows what Nintendo was thinking there, I mean, Nintendo always made sure there was a Mario game of some kind somewhere within close proximity of a launch of a console. <laughs> I mean, Mario Galaxy didn't launch with the Wii either. Felt a little more coming just around the corner than, <laughs> than Mario Sunshine did with, uh, with the GameCube. And, of course, most of the time they had a Mario game ready to go within, if not as a launch title, within a few months of launch. So... That was something that was very important for Sega to have for the launch of that console, but Naka didn't want to do it. So they assigned it to STI. STI had been working on another side game for the 32X called Sonic Extreme. And then they decided that Sonic Extreme was going to move to the Saturn. I'm not going to get into the full Sonic Extreme story here, just as we split Mario into 2D and 3D periods. Uh, We'll do the same with Sonic at some point in the future and come back and talk about some of his 3D iterations in a different episode. But uh, I just wanted to kind of bring up that at this point, when they really needed a new game and STI was given the job of working on it, Naka refused to cooperate with them in any way, shape, or form, refused to even let them use the 3D engine he had developed for Knights and use in a Sonic game. Uh, the Sonic game at STI went through different design decisions. They were trying different techniques, different graphical methods. Nothing was working. The lead designer, like, nearly literally died during the process. It was just the most, like, traumatic thing. Wait, wait. The lead designer almost dies? Yeah, he just got really, really ill from overwork. It was an ugly situation, and there ended up being no Sonic game on the Saturn as a result. They recovered a bit on the Dreamcast. Sonic Adventure is uh, a pretty well-regarded game, but that's kind of indicative. It's kind of the beginning of the end. It's like they have this character, and they've established this character through three or four games, but they can't really figure out a way to move beyond what they've already done in the first couple of Sonic games in an interesting way, and they have so much trouble trying to figure out a way to move on from that and move into 3D that they completely miss a system. I mean, it would be unthinkable for Mario to completely miss a Nintendo system. 
Admittedly, if Yuji Naka and Oshima and Yazahara had turned their attention to a Sonic game when they went back to Japan, that's kind of the A-team. They might have been able to figure something out. But it was kind of left with the B-team, so to speak. No disrespect to them at all, because there were very talented people at Sega Technical Institute. They were given a console that was very difficult to use. They were given a console that was really a 2D console that was kind of pretending to be a 3D console because the Sony PlayStation forced them to pretend to be a 3D console. It was just kind of development hell, and it never released. And, I mean, that was kind of the end of Sonic as a force. Like I said, Sonic Adventure is well enough regarded, but Mario 64 sold the N64. Um, you know, you can't really say the same thing about Sonic Adventure and the Dreamcast. It wasn't so revolutionary that everyone had to go out and buy a Dreamcast. The Dreamcast ended up being a noble failure. I mean, it's kind of a downer note to to end Sonic on, but I think it's fair to say that he turned out to be a one-trick pony, and even though they did find some ways to be a little bit inventive with him in subsequent eras, I think most people would agree that almost all of the 3D Sonic stuff is pretty bad (laughs) Uh, there's plenty of videos out there people mocking the later sonics and just sort of like yeah we need to put this franchise to rest right but then of course to end on maybe a little less of a downer back in 2017 they did release the very well received sonic mania which was a throwback game it wasn't trying to be this 3d monstrosity with needless lore and 10 billion side characters it It went right back to the roots of the first few games and managed to have solid level design and go back to a premise that does work as long as you don't do it to death and uh, had themselves a really good success. I mean, it was the first Sonic game that was pretty universally beloved after so many of the 3D games hadn't been. There's definitely still a place for Sonic in the world when Sonic is used correctly. It's just he didn't end up being quite the same everyman character as Mario, whom you could stick into all of these different situations and all of these different kind of worlds, and it would still work. That makes perfect sense, at least to me. So, since that pretty much sums up going fast up the tower and then the tower going down, yes, I will show in the show notes pictures of the tower. (laughs) <laughs> the tower always amuses me, especially when you bring in things like Game Genie into it, too, and the three and the 32X, and oh then you God. get this, like, nightmarish, tall thing, and then it needs support structures, and it's fun. It's like the Metroplex Transformer. <laughs> 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 so, since we've covered Sonic somewhat quickly, what shall we discuss next time? Well, Jeff. Yes? I think it's time we go back to the very beginning. Haven't we done that already, like, multiple times? No, we've gone back to beginnings. Beginnings like Space War. That's pretty beginning. And Pong. And the Magnavox Odyssey. But we've never gone back to the very beginning. The very beginning of computers. The very beginning of games. We haven't? We have not. And since I am frantically trying to finish a book, even as we speak, that discusses, amongst other things, the very beginning of games, 
It would be very useful for me, having already written extensively about the subject, to go ahead and go back to the root of all gaming, the very beginning of computers, of digital computers, and some of the very first programs that people were making for computers that were games and why they were making games and how that all fits in with the world. None of these games that we'll be talking about actually went on to really influence the commercial computer game industry. We've kind of talked about the games that form the root of that, games like Space War and Pong already. But, you know, it's kind of interesting to look back and see what people were doing with computing in the 1940s and the 1950s, and uh, how even back then, even when there was no commercial market, even when there was no way to sell anything, even when only a few dozen people were going to be able to see them at all, people were still interested in using these strange new devices to, uh, to create games and to entertain, to educate, and to demonstrate. Well, you have to make it something simple so that the general or commander who's going in there approving your budget goes, all right, I can see how this missile goes from point A to point B somewhat quickly and blows up target C. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, that's, that's what we'll discuss next time. All right. Something with computers next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's forthcoming book is through CRC Press. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is at TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 